Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. Today I want to talk to you uh, on the subject of consecration, a sermon on consecration. I'm going to begin to read out of the book of Daniel, then we're going to read a short scripture in John, then we'll, we'll jump right into it. But right in the beginning of the book of Daniel, his story begins like this. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of the court officials, this king is the king of Babylon at the time, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and from nobility. Israel was just conquered by Babylon. They were brought out of Jerusalem and into captivity in the city of Babylon. And so now they're, they're going to serve the king of Babylon. And this is who he's looking for, young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, in, well quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. And the chief official, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine. From the king's table, they were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king of Babylon's service. Among those who were chosen were from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and uh, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. Now, this is why I wanted to read this, even though there's a bunch of long names in it. I wanted to read this so you could see who we're talking about. To Daniel, he gave him the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. I wanted you to, to hear this because this, like, this is like the origin story to these superheroes here. And their, their ability that we see later on when they refuse to kneel and worship the golden image of the king of Babylon, that, that moment of of civil disobedience, that moment where they choose to not bow to culture didn't begin then. It didn't begin in the fire. It began right here. This is where God begins to walk them into having the ability to be consecrated to himself and not to culture. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and the royal wine. This is the moment where Daniel resolved to not defile himself with the delicacies of the king's court. One more verse I want to read to you in John 17. Jesus says this, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I want to challenge you with the same challenge that Daniel gave Babylon. I want, I want you to take it on as your challenge to this culture, your challenge to the God of this world. Daniel said, you serve your God and we'll serve our God. You eat your way, we'll eat our way. You live your way, we'll live our way. And in the end, we'll see who is stronger. What he is essentially saying is we will live out our convictions and then we will allow God to handle the elevation. We're not out here to make it happen for ourselves. We're not out here with our grind. We're not out here to become something. We're out here to follow God with all that we are to the best of our ability, and we will allow God to handle all the rest. Let me put it this way. We as Christians, we choose to consecrate ourselves to Christ and allow God to handle our elevation 
and our reputation. We find Daniel and his three friends in the midst of tragedy. They have just suffered a massive loss, one of the greatest losses that's ever recorded in the Bible. Babylon comes in and destroys Israel, destroys Judah, and, and, and burns the temple, begins to take sacred objects from the temple and brings, brings Judah into slavery in Babylon. Babylon was a growing empire at this time, and, and this was a great victory for Babylon. In fact, there was, uh, up until just recently, a relief in the city of Nineveh uh, uh, made into the stone that shows the subjugation of Israel. This is something that Babylon celebrated. Why? As a victory for their God, over the Israelites' God. you got to understand, back then, it wasn't two secular cultures, two godless cultures fighting. When Babylon won, it felt to the Israelites as if not only did they lose, but that their God lost. They, they at this moment, would have felt faithless. They would have felt abandoned. They would have felt forgotten by their God. And, 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 and they would not just have the struggle of, of being slaves in a foreign land under, under foreign tyranny, they would also be struggling with what happened with God. Did he abandon us? Did he forget us? And, and they would have also been in a crisis of their faith. This is where we find these three young men, teenage boys, that, that, that could have every excuse to be ignorant, to be afraid, and yet we find this incredible amount of faith even in the midst of, of trying painful circumstances. Even when they feel like they lost, their faith lost, their nation lost, their family lost, here they choose to reject the system of indoctrination that Babylon begins to subjugate them into. See, Babylon comes in immediately and begins to say, forget your old past life. Forget your old God. Forget your old way of eating and thinking and living now. You are going to come into our culture, and by the end of this, after the end of three years, you are going to serve our king, not your king. You're going to serve our land. You're going to serve our God. You're going to look, act, speak just like us. We're going to put you through this system of indoctrination. And you know what's interesting? The enemy, which Babylon was the enemy, but it's a picture of the enemy against Christians. The enemy has no new tactics. The enemy always targets the next generation. Thousands and thousands of years ago, that's who the enemy goes after, the young minds of that generation. So, who the enemy is going after now? Babylon is a historical picture, not just here, but all throughout the Bible. Babylon is a picture of, of the enemy's kingdom that stands against God's kingdom. It's a picture of the enemy's kingdom that seeks to oppress God's people. In fact, the book of Daniel, half of it is narrative, but you know the second half of the book of Daniel? It's all about the end times. If you go to the book of Revelation, Babylon features prominently. So, so I say this to say, this is not just an ancient sermon. This is not just an ancient story. This is a relevant one. Because we're living in what looks like the end times. We're coming closer and closer to Jesus arriving again. And so when we look back at those that, that lived through the first Babylon, it gives us a culture and a code to follow to exist this coming Babylon, that we might stand for Christ in the midst of a generation that is seeking indoctrination. And how do they do it? They did it through food, their names, and their language and literature. Now, I'm not going to get caught up in all of this. I could preach a whole sermon on these three things, 
But I just want you to understand through food what they consume, their names were changed, that's their identity, and language and literature, that is their education. Listen, I'm just going to say it again because I could preach a whole sermon, but I don't even need to. This is how the enemy begins to try and shift who they are at a young age through what they consume, through their identity, and through their education. And, and, and Daniel begins to step up. And, and he determines, the Bible says, he decides, he determines in his heart, I'm not going to eat the king's food. That, that's where he drew the line. Uh, apparently because he says, you can change my name, but I already know who I am. And, and you, can, you can bring me into your language and your literature, but I already know my God and I already know his word. But it, it's, it's at food that he draws the line. Interesting. Because I think the food sounds the best part of all of this. Whatever the king eats, this is the king of Babylon. This is, this is at a time where most people in the world were starving. This is at a time where those that weren't starving were eating things that we wouldn't even eat today. And yet here, the king of the greatest empire the world has ever seen up until this moment in his palace is offering you to have what he's having. To live like he's living. To, to literally come up to his table and, and not just get the leftovers, not get the, the, the scraps, but get exactly the very best of what the king is having. But you see, you got to understand this wasn't just about food. No, we're talking about a, a culture that when you ate together, it meant that you came into covenant together. See, Daniel knew, if I accept these delicacies, if I accept the easy way, if I eat of the king's food, what I'm doing, what I'm saying is I accept the king. I accept his culture. I will give up my convictions in order to receive that comfort. And let's not act as if this wasn't a real temptation. He was there, young, thousands of miles away from his home. No one would have known. No one would have judged. And he could have even said, look, I've been, I've been kept away from the horrors of this destruction. Let me just take the easy way out. But what he determined in his heart was he said, I will not come into covenant with the king that is not my king. I will not come into covenant with the culture that is not my culture. Because when you ate together, you came into covenant. Many times, the food, the meat specifically, that you ate was first dedicated to their God. Dedicated to their idols. So what Daniel would have been saying is, I will, I will receive the blessings from another idol, from another God. And he draws the line there. This is what consecration looks like. It's a, it's a decision. It's a resolution that he says, I am not going to join the king's culture. See, this is the accusation that people came against Jesus with. Do you remember of all the things they could have had a problem with Jesus about? Again, Jesus is totally perfect, but the Pharisees still had a problem with him, which I hope gives you encouragement that you could be perfect and a bunch of people will still have a problem with you. Here the Pharisees are frustrated with Jesus, throwing accusations. Do you remember what the accusation was? They said, he eats with sinners. What was their problem? Their problem was that he engaged in the act of eating with people whom they deemed unredeemable. He eats with sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes. What they were angry about was the action of friendship that Jesus was having with those that were supposed to be kept away from the table. He, they were angry about the covenant that Jesus opened up with those who people deem don't deserve the covenant. Thank God, because Jesus accepts you and I to his table. We're the tax collectors, we're the sinners, we're the unredeemable. 
And the religious elite were as angry then as they are now, frustrated that those who shouldn't be forgiven, those who shouldn't receive mercy, those are the ones that Jesus comes to. And so their accusation was actually, they were accusing him of friendship that these people didn't deserve. See, that, that's what Daniel was saying, is Daniel was saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to come into friendship with that king, but I'm thankful that a true and better king, he came to our planet and he opened a table between you and I, and he invites us into covenant with himself. In fact, this is what Jesus is speaking about when he uses that infamous invitation, where Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to, um, if you want to be received by my Father in heaven. You know, in the early Roman Empire, people thought Christians were cannibals because of this statement. People didn't understand it then. Still have a hard time understanding it now. But see, what Jesus was saying, he was saying, I am the bread of life. He goes on to say, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And this bread, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, I am the bread. My blood is the wine. My life is the water. If you are hungry, if you are thirsty, I'm going to lay my life down. So that you can come and eat of the bread of life. You can receive the wine of blessing. And you can be covenanted with the king of kings. I know it's a little deep there. We went from Nebuchadnezzar to God. But how amazing is it that Nebuchadnezzar offers this meal. And Daniel says, no, I don't want to be covenanted with you. But thousands of years later, Jesus comes and he says, I'm the new meal. I'm the bread. I'm the water. I'm the wine. When you receive me. When you come into acceptance of me, when you eat of my life, when you eat of my sacrifice, you will be connected, covenanted, you will be friends with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and accepted into his kingdom. Daniel said, we're not going to serve the King Nebuchadnezzar with our heart, mind, and soul. But today, you and I say we can serve the King of Kings with our heart, mind, and soul. I'm thankful that Jesus came. He opened the way. He set the table, and he laid down his life so that you and I can have eternal life. That's one of the most difficult parts, one of the most difficult scriptures in all the Bible. And here, you just had it explained what it means from Old Testament to New Testament, is that Jesus is saying, I am the way to be covenanted with the King of Kings. I am the way to receive friendship with the King of Kings. Daniel says, I will live in this world, but I am not of this world. I will not be covenanted with a king that hates my God. I will not be friends with a culture that is anti-Christ. So the Bible says that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. He resolved. I love that word. Daniel made a decision, a determination. A resolution. There's a famous American preacher, thinker, philosopher named Jonathan Edwards, arguably the greatest mind that America has ever produced. Jonathan Edwards preached in the 1700s in America, and he was um, the initiator of the Great Awakening here in New England. Wrote many different books and and uh, set this place on fire for the Lord. Incredible man of God, and and. If the, the amount of books that he read, it's just astonishing how much output this man uh, had in his very short life. 
What's interesting about Jonathan Edwards is he had a list of resolutions, 70 different resolutions that he wrote himself that he was determined to know and live by in his life. He resolved in his, in his heart the way in which he was going to live. You, you might have even heard some of these re resolutions. The number seven is the famous one. Oh, I, I don't have it here on the screen, but I'll, I'll read it to you real quick. Number seven is this. He says, I'm resolved never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. I'm sure you've heard that before. That comes from Jonathan Edwards. And he wrote these 70 resolutions, and at the end of every week, Sunday night, before he started the new week, he would pull out these resolutions and recite them. Why? Because he wanted to focus his mind and his heart, not just on living, but how he was going to live. See, Daniel couldn't control the situation he found himself in. He was subjugated, brought here against his will. He couldn't control what was happening on the outside, but he could control how he was going to live and how he was going to react. So he resolved in his heart, this is what I won't do. I will not accept this culture. Here's the point. You and I, we have the power, we have the ability, and I believe we have the calling to create a framework in, how, in order to consecrate our life. If you do not create a framework, you will never make any resolutions. You will never consecrate your life. What am I talking about? I'm saying, what are your values? What vision do you have for your life? At the beginning of the year, of course, we write down goals. That's becoming more of a joke than it is something real. What I'm saying is, if you want to live a consecrated life, you need to have some resolutions. You might not have 70. You might not write them down, although I would I would actually attach Jonathan Edwards' practice of doing that with the incredible output of his life. A man that not just had resolutions, he knew exactly what they were. But I believe that you are called to have values. You're called to draw some lines in your life that you will not cross. Well, in order to do that, you have to create some framework. You've got to write them down. Put them somewhere in your house. What are your values? What's your mission statement? What are the things that you want to excel and exceed in? What are some lines that you will never cross? In order for Daniel to get close to God, he had to resolve some things in his heart. So you and I, in order to be, fulfill the calling God has for our lives, there are some things that we have to resolve in our heart. Some things we're going to have to walk out in our life. Some values that we need to have that even if the world all around us mocks at those values, they are resolved in our heart. There's some lines maybe in your business that you say, I will not cross. Maybe there's some people around you that say, that's no big deal. Just do it under the table. Who cares? Everyone else is doing it. But you have set some principles of integrity in your business. And you say, I've resolved to not cross these lines. In your marriage, maybe there are some hard lines that you need to put down and say, I will not cross this line. Other people in your in your workplace, they might say it's no big deal, it's just a little bit of workplace flirting, but you have made a decision in your life in order to safeguard my marriage, I'm drawing a line, and I will not cross it. I don't know what the lines are in your life, but hear me, in order to consecrate your life, you need to create a framework to help you do that. Some resolutions, some decisions, because hear me, nothing exceptional happens by accident. Nothing exceptional happens by happenstance. Exceptional kids do not happen by accident. 
An exceptional marriage does not happen by accident. An exceptional workplace does not happen by accident. It takes thought, it takes process, and it takes dedication. I hope you have an exceptional home. I know things can't be perfect. Certainly not. We're fallen creatures. We live in a fallen world. But I do pray that the things that were in maybe in the homes that you were raised in or the homes all around you, they don't have to reign in your home. Your children can be different. Your marriage can be different. Not perfect, but exceptional. Exceptional. But you might say, well, Jordan, how do I do that? I believe that there are some values you need to set in place. A spirit, the Holy Spirit, that you need to get connected to. Some decisions that you need to make and make public. Set the framework to say, this is how I'm going to live. And if all the others say, well, the world around you is not living that way yet, but the world around me might be Babylon. I'm not called to live in Babylon. I'm called to be a child of God. We see that, of course, right away, Daniel runs into an obstacle. The, the, the chief official says to Daniel, I can't let you not eat of the meat and the wine when all the others are doing that. It's always, it's always like you got to get in line. you got to do what everyone else is doing. He says, because what if you end up looking worse than they look? They're eating better. They're relaxing. They're living in luxury. And if you just eat vegetables and water like, like the common people, you're not going to look kingly. The chief official was worried about this, probably rightfully so, because he literally said, look, if this goes wrong, the king will cut my head off. He will take me out. This is serious for him. So Daniel begins a little bit of negotiation. He says, all right, how about this? Let's test. Let's do a challenge. Let's do a test. For 10 days, let's do it my way. If it doesn't end up working, no big deal. We'll go back to your way. And so he negotiates, which, by the way, shows that you can have convictions, and you can be consecrated without alienating everyone around you. He was likable. He was able to, to use his communication skills. He was able, able to negotiate and have a relationship with this person that was, was over him in this foreign land. But here, he was able to be kind and open and generous. And, and, and here they are negotiating. So the chief official says, okay, you got 10 days. You do it your way, and we'll see what happens at the end of those 10 days. I love this challenge. I love this test because I believe it's the test that you and I should have when it comes to living in this world. I believe our goal as Christians, I'm speaking to the fathers, I'm speaking to the mothers right now. I believe our goal as Christians should be to develop our families according to God's principles and not culture's ideologies. I'll say that again. I believe that it should be our goal to develop our families according to God's principles and not culture's ideologies. In order to do that, we're going to have to do a little test. There's going to have to be a challenge. And I think it should be this, okay? You could say to the world, you could say to the world, you follow your way, we'll follow God's way, and we'll see at the end of this process, who grows stronger? You do it your way for 10 years, we'll follow the word of God. You lead your marriage, you lead your family, you lead with the ever-shifting cultural ideas and trending topics on Twitter. You chase that rabbit. But we will live our lives on the deep 
ancient foundation found in Scripture will go God's way, and we'll see in the end who's stronger. This is, I believe, the calling and the test of every Christian, under the sound of my voice, every Christian that's associated with awakening. We're going to follow God's way. We're going to let the world go the world's way, and we'll see what happens. See, this is, this is, this is what it's going to take to raise godly children. The enemy's coming after, certainly coming after the next generation, but so we are raising the next generation. Heard the great psychologist Jordan Peterson say that children are a long-term investment. The reality is, if you're looking for instantaneous or even quick results, you're not going to get it um, when it comes to raising children. It takes a long time. It takes a long time to cultivate a home in God's way. It's a lot easier to stick in front of the TV, let them go into public education, say whatever happens, happens. It's a lot more difficult to take an active hand in raising your children in the way that they should go. It's a lot more difficult. And the return on investment sometimes is in 10, 20, 30 years, but I believe God is calling the fathers and the mothers to say, do it my way. Even if it takes 10 years, do it my way. And in the end, your children will come out bold, they'll come out strong, come out consecrated, they'll come out holy. You might not be able to just eat whatever, drink whatever. You might not be able to just do whatever, be named by, by another society. But hear me, come along. Come, come, come to the side. Come to the community. Come to the house of God. Raise your children in the things of God. And I can promise you, 10 years from now, they'll come out strong. I've seen this. I, I've, I've, I've been able to compare the results of of what it looks like to raise children in the ways of God versus raising children in culture. I've been able to compare it because I've, I've lived in the church long enough. I've, I grew up in this church. And so for over 30 years, I've been able to see those that led their children with faith and those that led their home out of flesh, those that were, um, were, adult, were adult children, those that... that that were older in age but still immature in their decisions. Those that followed their flesh still did the things they wanted to do. I've seen the parents that still thought it was about them versus those that said, I'm going to lay my life down for my future. I'm going to lead my home. I've seen the difference between a home that was led in faith and a home that was led out of the flesh. And it always starts small. It's always a small difference. Like what? You're, what? You're not going to eat the king's meat? We're here. We're in the palace. It's no big deal. No one will even know. It always starts small, but it's small decisions over a long period of time that will lead you in two completely different directions. Seeing the parents that say, look, church is no big deal. We'll go when we can go. But I know you have soccer. I know you have football. I know you have dance. God's good. We'll get to it. But for now, missing church here and there is no big deal. We'll stick you in front of the screen like Everything else you do in life, community, all of that, it takes a backseat. I've seen what that does over time. And it does take a very long time. There are critical decisions that you need to make now. Consecrations, resolutions for your home and your children, and how you are going to raise them and how you're going to lead your family, fathers. Critical decisions that seem small now, but are going to have massive results in the end. And I, I can compare the marriages at this point 
even now of those that I grew up in the church with. I can compare the lives. Of course, many of the people that I grew up with in the church that, that are still in the church, I'm not, I'm not saying they haven't had their share of obstacles and struggles, but when you look at them, they're, they're, their homes are heading towards health. Their lives are dedicated to God. Longevity leaves a legacy. It takes a long time for that to begin to grow deep, where the, even the family is beginning to grow together. It takes a long time for that to happen. And it takes dedication, faith, consecration. But I can compare that to others that I've seen that start small, no big deal, drinking a little bit, it's no big deal, have a little bit of a substance thing, it's no big deal, going off to these strange, strange um, institutions and it's no big deal. And, and that, yeah, they're living out of wedlock, no big deal. They have a child by a woman, they're not married, no big deal. But eventually these decisions become a big deal. And eventually those that chose the way of the world reap the blessing of the world. Now they got to serve the God of Babylon. And they're missing out on the blessings of the king of kings. So I'm speaking to you fathers, mothers, future fathers and mothers to follow God's way, even if it doesn't look like a lot's happening right now. Your son, your daughter, six years old, no big deal. Doesn't seem like, doesn't seem like they're all kind of good kids, but hear me, when they're 16, 17, when they're 26, 27, unless you train up the child in the way they should go, what you will have as a consequence of your action, will be something that you never dreamed. But if you raise up the child in the way that they should go, even when they're older, even when you have less say, even when they've moved across the country, when they're older, they will not depart from the way that you set. Let me put it simply. Faithful always becomes fruitful. Faithful in your home, in your marriage, and your values, it always becomes fruitful. You rarely see a difference in a year, but you will always see it in a decade. Daniel says, give us 10 days. But by the end of the story, we're able to see that 10 years later, Daniel had risen in grandeur. He'd risen in occupation. He'd risen in influence. He'd risen to the heights. Why? Because of the small decisions he made at the very beginning. He said, I'm going to lead myself well. And then look. All of a sudden, the crew around him began to be influenced by him. There's only four of these young men. but Some of the greatest stories in the Bible come out of these four young men. No one else in the city is living like them. No one else in the empire is living like them. And yet, they're not afraid to stand alone. And God loves that. He uses them for incredible miracles. I believe that we, as leaders in culture, we're called to follow God's way, not our way. We're followed, called to follow God's principles, not the way of the world. But if we do, I believe that God is going to come alongside us, and he's going to begin to bless us. I, I, I'm, I don't want to be you know, a prosperity preacher. I, I understand that, you know, that, that this subject can be kind of abused and but I got to tell you, when I read the Bible, everyone that follows God turns out immensely blessed. And even if it doesn't end the way they thought it ended, in heaven, they are immensely blessed. 
Say that to say, I'm going to go God's way, and I'm going to let him favor me. I pray you go God's way and let him favor your life. Look at the end of this, of this sermon, that Daniel chapter 1. The Bible tells us what happens with Daniel and his friends. The Bible says that God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. God gets involved. And he says, see that young guy right there? I want you to have compassion. I want, you, I want you to see it from his perspective. I want you to have favor. And the, the Bible says, and at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished. See, this isn't just about eating well. This is about what happens when you choose to stand with God. Not only are you healthy in your spirit, you get healthy in your mind, you get healthy in your body. When you begin to follow God, things begin to be clear. You look different. Ever since something happened to you? Yeah. I went to the altar on Sunday, got some things lifted off my mind. I got some shame that was pushing me into despair. I got, I got that lifted off my body. I look healthier, feel healthier. Why? Because the hand of God is on your life. God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning to them. Look, they became wise, and, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And the chief official, he presented them to King Nebuchadnezzar. They're standing in the court of the king. And Nebuchadnezzar found none equal to them. Out of all the nations, out of all the people in his court, he says there's something different about these four. There's just something on them. Something in the way that they look and the way their mind operates. Let's track it back. Let's track it back. Three years earlier, Daniel made a decision. I'm not going to come into covenant with this king, a lesser king. I'm going to be a covenant with the king of kings. And then God says, oh, you're covenanting with me? Then I'll give you favor with him because that king is beneath me. Now it goes on. It says, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and all the enchanters in his whole kingdom. So let's, let's recap this. Because they chose to consecrate themselves to God, at the end of this time, they found themselves with increased influence. They found themselves healthy. They find their mind working with brilliance. Daniel received spiritual gifts. They were elevated to a place of leadership. They were given wisdom and elevation in a land that was not even their own. If you want that, it begins with the consecration. Saying, God, I'm going to live by your principles, your word, and your way. Even all those around me don't understand. If they mock and belittle, I stand with you. And the reality is this. If God favors you, no one can stop you. If God has his hand on you, nothing can come against you that could succeed against you. God's got you. This is what Paul is speaking about when he says, I'm going to stick with God. He says, he says this, for Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says, I've settled this. I've resolved this. I've chosen my way. I am not going to seek and search after the approval of man. By the way, you could be Jesus Christ himself and still not receive the approval of man. I've decided in my heart, Paul says, I'm going to be a servant of Christ. And then let's see what God does. 
as we consecrate our lives to him, as we assimilate his values, as we allow God to identify us, as we consume his words, his presence, his worship, we get around his people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, before they ever stood in the fire and experienced Jesus, they first made the simple choice to abstain from the way of the world. And God says, you can handle that? Well, let me give you more. He's a good God. He's a good God. And he will elevate us into places of leadership and influence in our time. And I do believe that people will recognize the favor of God on your life. If you choose to walk his way, eventually people will begin to see there's a difference on you. And the way you speak and the way that you live, <laughs> they might even disagree with all the underlying principles, but they can't deny that there's something on your life. What are they recognizing? God's favor on your life. There's a businesswoman in our church who's having a conversation with my wife and I, and she was speaking about this uh, headhunter for jobs that calls her up constantly and, and says, do you know anybody else from Awakening Church? She said, um, I, I found that they are hardworking and people of integrity. So if you ever, if you ever you know, uh, submit them to me, I'm going to submit them for the job. I want more people from that church. What does she recognize? She re recognizes God's favor on people that choose to live out his principles. It's a simple sermon. It's a simple it's a simple message, but I believe it can have massive ramifications in our community. I pray that our marriages are different. I pray that our children are different. And we are going to take the steps and the actions that are required in order to stay different from the world. That God's hand can rest on us. That he can choose to bless us. That no other king, Nebuchadnezzar, no other culture, Babylon, could ever get the glory for what God will do. But what's our calling? What's our action? We have to choose to stay consecrated. Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon.